0: Let's pray. Well, Lord, I just thank you for uh, for that time of worship. It's amazing how a span of time can include so much, in terms of emotion, in terms of where it takes us. Just thank you for the intimacy that was a part of all of that. Just ask you that you would be in this word that uh, I will now share. As always, we pray for revelation to occur. Information is good and information is helpful, but Lord, revelation is what will make the difference. So bless this time, Father, And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we have a movie clip. (laughs) What a surprise, right? Uh, This is an older movie. Some of you may not have ever seen this. Uh, But it's from 1984. There was a movie that came out called All of Me. And it starred uh, Steve Martin and Lily Tomlin. And... uh, in this movie, Lily Tomlin plays a, a millionaire who's kind of cranky, crotchety, and she's dying. And so she arranges to have this eastern mystic come, and he is going to transfer her soul into the body of a young woman that has agreed to do this. And so basically that allows this millionairess to keep on living, okay? Well... All sounds good. And Steve Martin incidentally plays her attorney. Okay, so that's how he that's how he figures into this. Well, um, without kind of revealing the way that everything goes in the movie, something goes terribly wrong and she ends up in Steve Martin, her attorney. Okay. But not exclusively. She and he are in there together. Okay. And so, this is just a couple of minute clip, um, but this is the point at which this transfer of souls has just taken place. Okay, And, um, and her lawyer, Steve Martin's character, is, uh, is finding out that it's not easy to be two people at the same time. All right, Hmm. Oh jeez. I can't believe I'm paralyzed. Here, let me try. Ah! We we obviously have mutual control over our body. Our body. My body. I'm not sharing my body with any. He's going to be real disappointed. Where are we going? Got to find Procolasa. I can't go in there. Skyler will think of... Excuse me, that's a private... conversation, do you mind? Uh, no! Please! Do as I say! your body while I feel dominant on the right oh let go that uh. Ah, ah. Uh. Oh, you how about a little respect for the deceased mm, mm. Ah, ah. let go of my hand you brute I will not oh 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 Concentrate. I'm the right side, uh, and you're the left. For me, you, me, you. See, if we cooperate, now what we have to do is fine process. Actually, there's something we have to do first. important to cut it right at that point. <laughs> so you'll have to rent the movie to uh, figure out where they're headed next. <laughs> um, and I'm sorry we were so in and out like that. I think I don't understand what may have happened. So we'll, we'll fix that next time. But I think it made the point. And the point is, as a Christian, don't you feel like that sometimes? Like there's two people inside of you competing. You know, for example, there might be times when part of you is really angry with God. But still, there's another part of you that can respond to God despite the fact that you're angry with Him. Or part of you could be engaging in some type of sin because this is a really good sin. You like this sin a lot. But then there's another part of you deep down that, Knows that it's not right to do that. So, you know, it can feel like there's this constant battle going on, you know, between one side and the other. And it ultimately makes the Christian life seem very frustrating and tiring. Um, But I think what might be at the root of this is a misunderstanding about our makeup. And that's what I want to focus on today, and I hope maybe we can bring some clarity to. So I want to begin exploring this by taking a look at a few verses from the book of Hebrews. So we're going to be in chapter 4, starting with verse 9. And at verse 9 it says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Okay, so that's pretty much where many of us are. We're in our works. We're still doing the self thing. We're still going to do good for God, right? And so we think, you know, I think I finally got this thing going on. You do this, and you do this, and you do this, and God's always blessing you. And he gives you these nice, cozy feelings. But see, the problem is that's not union with Christ. When you enter into God's rest, you cease from doing your own works, just as God ceased from doing his. And that's where we want to be. We want to be in that place of rest. Okay, so let's continue on with this and look at, look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Hmm. Okay, so what that seems to be saying is soul and spirit, those are two different things. Joints and marrow, two different things. Thoughts and intentions of the heart. Two different things. Hmm. Could it be that in one area of you, your thoughts and your emotions, you could be experiencing one thing and in another place, in your spirit, you can be experiencing something else. Well, I think the answer is yes. What this is saying is that there's a difference between the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Now, if we're believers, if we call ourselves believers in Jesus, then the intent of our hearts is going to be for God. You know, even you know, we talked a few weeks ago about that roller coaster that we seem to be on. And even when we're on that roller coaster, that intent of our heart doesn't change. We're still for God, right? You know, high, low, we don't like being down here, we love being up here, but our hearts are still in that place where we really want to be for God. But what this seems to be saying is that we can have thoughts and feelings that differ from the intents of our heart. And so I think the problem is that, that many of us have is this. We don't really know the difference between our souls and our spirits. We confuse the feelings and the thoughts we have with our real self, who is our deepest inner person, who is our spirit. And the problem with all of this is that our feelings and our thoughts um, they're so much louder <laughs> to most of us than the intents of our heart. And, if, and so if that's the case, then we haven't experienced this living word of God to separate soul from spirit. See, it says the living word of God, the spirit speaks into our hearts, is a sharp, like a sword, and it divides making a sharp distinction between the two. And so we're not just our feelings and our thoughts or, or our soul. We're spirit beings. God is the father of our spirit. And our spirit is one with him. Our spirit lives are in union with him. But see, that spirit is so quiet. It's virtually noiseless. Noiseless it doesn't cause that uproar within us that thoughts and feelings do. And so if we don't understand this nature of the spirit, then all these rumblings and this noise that's going on in our souls really can confuse us. And then we begin to think, well that's the real me. Those thoughts and those feelings that I'm having, that's that's really who I am. And that's exactly how we start to believe that we have two natures. Even though Scripture tells us that the old is dead and the new has come, there aren't two. There's one. And the one is good. And it's also why we feel like there's two people. So we have thoughts or we have feelings that we don't like, and so we just conclude, well the real part of me must be bad. I have those kinds of thoughts and feelings on and off all day, don't you? You know, our thoughts and feelings can run the entire gamut on any given day. So, you know, the ones that we like, we're okay with, but the ones that we don't like, well then we, we decide, okay, we're gonna go to war with those, and we're gonna get those under submission. And so, the harder that we try to exert some kind of power over them, the more they seem to be stubbornly clinging uh, and grabbing at us. And so, to experience this true union with Christ, the Holy Spirit has got to give us revelation to two truths. One we've talked about already. And that's the first, is we have to have this revelation that we died in Christ, that we're dead to sin dead to the law, and dead to ourselves as our point of reference. We really went through that over the last couple of weeks. And secondly is this point, that we have to have a revelation on the difference between our souls and our spirits and how to manage that. And unless these two truths really become fixed in your spiritual consciousness, you're never going to be able to live out of the union that is there. Satan's going to keep telling you, well, you know, the the old you really isn't dead. These thoughts and the the feelings that you're having, well, that's the real you. Aren't you ashamed to be such a wretched sinner? But you have, you call yourself a Christian and you have these kinds of thoughts and feelings. You're a horrible person. Any of this sound familiar? If you've ever been in a place that experienced a hurricane, you more than likely remembered that you know, the weatherman or a newscaster probably said something like this. They said, well, you know, the wind is going to be ferocious, so that you need to seek a place of security and safety. But remember, when the period of dead silence comes, don't leave your place of safety. Because after that period of silence, you're going to be hit by the backside of this hurricane. And so, you know, if someone doesn't know that and they go out, oh, it's quiet. I guess it's all over. And they run outside and they come charging out, the next place that they landed might be a county or two from where they started. So that's pretty good advice. Don't leave your place of security. Well, the hurricane illustrates this difference between spirit and soul. See, even though the eye of the hurricane is dead quiet, if you understand um, weather and storms, you know that's where the power of the storm is. It's in that quiet center. But where is all the noise and where is all the destruction and where is all the commotion? Well, it's on the outside. It's external to the eye, right? And so it provides us with a really good analogy to soul and spirit. The spirit is fixed, it's unified, and it's quiet. And the soul is very turbulent. The soul is always making all kinds of noise and it's spewing forth all kinds of emotions and we're just there riding the crest of the waves, right? And that's how we, we tend to experience life. You know, we have our up and down feelings and our up and down thoughts and we don't really know that we're spirit persons. And if, and if we don't know that, and if we don't know that our spirit is in union with God, then that activity that's going on in the soul is what controls us. Now it's, you know, I think most people understand this concept that the human being is comprised of three parts. Body, soul, spirit. Right? Well, what's the most important of the three? Spirit. Our spirit is the part of us that was born from above. It is, as we could say, it's the, the truest, the deepest part of us. It's fixed. The soul is changeable. Like we said, at any given moment, it can be all over the place. And you can sort of illustrate what goes on here with a swing. Now, The top of the swing, where it's attached, you can see, that's our spirit. And that's that place where our spirit and the Holy Spirit join together. And it's a place of security. Things are safe there. You know, it it might move a little bit up there, but compared to the movement that the swing makes, it's almost negligible. It's a very quiet place. You don't really pay any attention to it. I mean, there isn't a kid that's been on a swing that really focuses on what that it's attached at the top. They just jump in the seat and off they go. And so just as that swing is attached to this really sure, solid anchor at the top, our spirit is joined to the ultimate anchor, the Lord himself. And that spirit makes little or no noise or movement. It's fixed, it's quiet, it's safe, and it's at rest. And if you'll notice, we sort of have a version of our line. And our spirit exists in that unseen and eternal realm. Where we've said before, things simply are. It doesn't change, it's invariable. Our union with God does not fluctuate doesn't like us one minute and hate us the next. He loves us. It's like what Laney was talking about. And, you know, we've just said that we don't pay a lot of attention to the top of the swing. And that's actually kind of what we can do. Uh, we do the same thing with God who is our anchor. And I don't mean to say necessarily that we're complacent in that sense, but that we can always depend on him. He's the secure one. He isn't going to let us go. He isn't going to turn us loose. We belong to him. We are his possession. And he gladly gave his life for ours. So let's look at the bottom now, the bottom of the swing. The seat itself is really where the soul and the body hang out. And of course, both of these things exist entirely in the scene and temporal realm. Uh, and it's obvious that the body does, but what we don't often think about is that's really where the soul is too. And so, as we said, the spirit was unchanging. Well, the soul's not at all. It changes all the time. Just as soon as some new thought or new feeling comes along, man, you're off. You've all experienced this. You can be feeling great, and you get a phone call, and something's not right, or your boss comes and hands you some other work assignment. There's an endless number of these kinds of things that happen. But it it shifts our mood or can shift our mood in a split second from being on the mountaintop to now we're deep In the valley. Well, what's the purpose of a swing? Duh, it's to swing. (laughs) You put a little child in a swing and you say, all right, don't swing. Well, that ain't gonna work. They're gonna swing, that's the whole reason for its existence. and it's not really performing its proper function unless it's swinging. But see, here's the thing as human beings. We don't like our swing to swing. See, our soul fluctuates between thoughts and feelings that we do like, and thoughts and feelings that we don't like. And we don't like those kinds of fluctuations. And so, if we don't understand that we're truly spirit, then all we're going to know inside of us is the fact that this thing is swinging back and forth all the time. Because we don't understand God's rest. We don't understand the full grace of God and how to live out of that union. And so what we do is we try to stop the swing. And sometimes it actually seems like, well, maybe God wants us to stop it. So we think, here's here's the definition of Christian maturity that most of us are operating under. We think that Christian maturity is getting that swing under control. All right. So what do we do? Something like this. We wait till that swing is on the good side, and then we try to nail it nail it there. Right? That's not the place where life flows from. It may be good, but it ain't God. Now, it's not to say that God may not be in some things on the good side. But what I'm calling good isn't always God. So put it, let's put it a different way. Operationally, if you're working like this, then you're still eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than from the tree of life. You may be only eating the fruit on the good side, but you're still eating from the wrong tree. We're still operating out of our own effort. And our own effort, we've said this before, cannot produce. God's life in you. Our self-effort does not originate above the line. It's not flowing from the life of Jesus. It's originating from ourselves. Remember, we've slipped back to that thing of being our own point of reference again. And so it's our soul operating independently, trying to make each one of us a good, good Christian. And so, as long as we continue to be our own point of reference, then we're going to constantly be in this vacillation between good and bad. Right? That swing's going to keep swinging. Now, we're trying to stop the swing because we think God wants us to stop all of those bad thoughts and feelings. So, what do we do? We try to nail it up on the good side. But here's the thing. We're never going to get the swing stop because God's the one that put it in motion. You see, God designed us on the soul level to be capable of feeling and thinking things that are contrary to spiritual to spirit reality. Why, you ask? I can hear that coming from all of you. Why? Because that's the only way that you can learn to live by faith. It's the only way that you finally understand who you really are, who he really is, rather than out of just the appearance of things. You see, God uses the operation of this swing to push us into living out of our spirit. So if if you try to stop it, you're doomed to failure. How are you going to stop what God started? but we still have this illusion that we can't. We even have a name for it. We call it crucifying the self. And so here's how it works. So maybe for about six weeks, if you're lucky, you can get this whole process under control. You get the swing nailed up on that side. And you're like, oh, thank goodness I've learned the secret." And then you turn your back, and you think you've got it made. And that swing comes and it smacks you right in the butt. And you say, well, I guess I don't have it down after all. And so you're back under guilt again. We're trying to stop something about which God is saying, it's okay. It's okay. I made you that way. You aren't supposed to get the swing stopped. And we're going to try and stop it until we finally understand what God meant when he put it in motion in the first place. And he did it to force us to understand that we have to live in a different place. And we're not going to know union with Christ until we can get that. Now, I didn't say you couldn't talk about it or quote Bible verses about it. I'm just saying you're not going to have experiential knowledge of it. see, once you can experience the reality of that union with Jesus, then you're no longer a soul-based person. A person who sees yourself as your whole point of reference. You've moved to another place altogether. You've moved above the line. And it's at that point that you can begin to see this soul activity not as a negative, but actually as a Positive. See, when our soul is not our point of reference anymore, but rather our spirit now becomes our point of reference that's joined with God, then our attention is taken away from our soul and directed towards him. And so when we finally see who we really are in Christ, then we can say, you know, that swing is absolutely necessary in God's scheme of things. Because how can the principle of faith operate in me without fluctuations on my soul level? How can faith operate in me if I can't can't be tempted to be unfaithful? It's not faith if you can't. And so as you begin to live from that deepest level where you and God are joined together, then you're not validating yourself or God from your soul. So the soul then ceases to become a problem. You see, as long as we're living physically below the line, the the soul and the body are going to be problem areas. So you'll validate God when you feel well, but not when you're sick. Or you'll validate God when your swing is on the good side, but not so much when it's on the bad. But when you're living out of your spirit, you don't have to validate God from either your soul or your body. You're validating God from your spirit. But as I said earlier, the problem is that your spirit doesn't really make any noise. It's really quiet there. Not so much at the soul level. I would really like to quiet down my soul. But see, we're not, we don't draw our life from there. It's that spirit um, in us, that place where it's perfectly still and quiet. that's where the life comes from. And I think there's a wonderful illustration uh, in scripture that um, may help you sort of see this in action. And it also, as my life group knows, happens to be one of my very favorite stories in all of the Bible. And it's the story of Elijah and the prophets. And so, Elijah, if you're not familiar with him, was this mighty man of God. He was a prophet, spoke powerfully on behalf of the Lord. And I mean, frankly, he did something that I'm not aware of anybody else ever doing. He said, it's not going to rain anymore until I say so. And that got people's attention quick. And sure enough, it didn't rain for three years. So, he's this great man of God, but he had a lot of soul noise, both good and bad, going on in his life. And so, he lived in this time when there was a lot of pagan worship and ungodliness in Israel. And so, there was a conflict that sort of came to a head um, between... the the believers in God and these people that had sort of were worshiping all different kinds of gods and idols and so forth. And so he goes and he tells King Ahab, who was the king at this time, to assemble all of Israel and all the prophets of Baal, who was really representing this other God, uh, on Mount Carmel. And they were going to have a showdown. Sort of like gunfight at the OK Corral, right? And they're going to prove who is truly God. So to sort of shorten this up a little bit, the prophets, false god, could not produce fire. They were were supposed to burn up an offering that they had put on an altar. And they spent pretty much the whole day doing all kinds of odd things, trying to call Baal to incinerate this cow that they had put on the altar. Nothing happened. Elijah just prays about 30 seconds worth of a prayer and bang, this fire comes down from heaven and just consumes everything. And so after God had proven himself, Elijah then kills all 450 of the false prophets. Need I say, he was in a pretty good place. He's riding high. I mean, wouldn't you be? Not so much with the killing part, but the fact that you called fire down, and man, it happened. All right, so now let me give you sort of a paraphrase of the rest of the story. So that that night, King Ahab goes back to the castle to his wife, the evil Queen Jezebel. And uh, it just so happened that it was the maid's day off, and so Jeze is in the kitchen (laughs) tossing a salad. And Ahab walks in and he says, Jesse, you should have been at the revival today. You know I don't have anything to do with your religion, she said. She just kept working on the salad. Well, you would have seen something today, he replies. It was amazing. And then he tells her about the contest. I'm not interested in your religion, Ahab. I've got my own gods. I've got my own preachers. Ahab answers, well, I sort of need to tell you about that. I believe you are now preacherless. Because after the contest was over, Elijah took all of your preachers, all 450 of them, down to the brook and he killed them. What did you say? All of your preachers are dead. Jezebel slowly begins to pick the lettuce off of her hands. And so she instructs Ahab, go in my office and get me a piece of royal stationery and get me the royal pen and the royal ink. I'm going to write a royal letter. Ahab, the henpecked husband, runs off and gets the royal paper and the pen and the ink and he brings them to her. And so Jezebel sits down and she writes one sentence. By this time tomorrow, you're going to be as dead as all of my preachers. So she folds it, seals it with the royal seal, and says, take this out to Elijah. He's sitting out in the town square somewhere with all those other wise guys. So you take that to him. So Elijah got the letter. And then this fearless man of God stood up and he said, I'll face her. I'm not afraid of her. I'll meet her tomorrow, and she isn't going to kill me. God is going to triumph. Is that what he did? No, No, not exactly. No, Elijah declared, you know, I think this is a good time for a vacation. (laughs) And I'll even take it without pay. So he didn't even wait around for the treasurer to write him a check. He just got out and ran. The Bible says that he was afraid, that he feared for his life. Fear is an emotion. Where's fear? It's in the soul. And so in that moment, like so many of us, Elijah was motivated by his soul activity. He was living just like anybody else. He was living out of the deepest... um, the deepest thing that he understood about himself, which were his thoughts and his feelings. So when Jezebel threatens his life, he makes a decision based on those thoughts and his feelings. He fled. He made the only response that he could make based on the level that he was functioning in. Get what I'm saying? We really can't fault him for it. if he had been operating in the deepest part of himself, then he wouldn't have needed this lesson that God was about to give him. So Elijah runs off to Mount Horeb, and he hides in a cave. I thought this was a really cool picture until I realized the guy in it was wearing pants. I don't think they had pants back then, but I'm no historian. So we'll assume this was not an actual photograph of Elijah, that this is a representation of such. So he runs off to Mount Horeb and he hides in a cave. And so that's where God encounters him. And so God says, and again we'll paraphrase this, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? I thought I left you up at Carmel rejoicing and leading the congregation in a celebration. You were having quite a revival. And Elijah answers, well, the queen threatened to kill me, and so I had to run because I'm the only one you have left. Are you? God replied. Well, poor me. Oh, I need to tell you something, Elijah. I've got 6,999 other prophets, and you make 7,000. Oh. Oh. God said, Elijah, go stand at the mouth of the cave. I'm going to perform an outdoor drama for you. I'm going to pass by you. So then God passes by Elijah, first in the form of an earthquake, and then as a mighty wind, and finally as a fire. All great destructive forces. And Elijah was overwhelmed by all three of those experiences, just like our feelings and our thoughts overwhelm us. Which is exactly what our soul does. Soul makes noise and gets your attention. It diverts you. And if you think that's the deepest thing in you, then you're going to live according to it. But there was a paradox in this drama that God had staged for Elijah, however. God had said, I am going to pass by you. But after every one of those events, the Bible says, but God wasn't in it. Three times these things happened. And three times God wasn't in it. Why did God stage such a drama with such powerful forces only to be absent from them? I don't know. But perhaps the Lord was saying to Elijah, everything in your life is ultimately of me, Elijah. I've set the whole operation in motion and I've kicked your swing into action. Nothing happens that I'm not active in, including your soul's feelings and thoughts. I take the messes that you or the devil make in your life and I change them into discipline or some other type of blessing. So I'm a part of these outer things in your life, including your soul fluctuations. But I'm not in them. Not in the deepest sense. I use them, but they're not of me. They're not the deepest understanding of me that you can have. You're going to miss me, Elijah, if that's the deepest you can go. That means that you don't have to grab hold of the swing and stop it. You don't have to say, I shouldn't have this feeling or I shouldn't have this thought. We don't have to play that game anymore. We don't have to go around denying who we are. We can accept our soul's fluctuations as something God is involved in and that God intends. But God says, if you judge reality by what's happening at your soul level, by what you think and what you feel, you're going to miss me. Scripture continues saying that Elijah then heard a still small voice. That's how the New King James Bible translates it. But there are other versions that say that he heard a soft, gentle blowing or sheer silence. Maybe it's an idea that's almost untranslatable. And if you look at all the different translations and how they express it, maybe it's best to say that Elijah didn't hear anything. But though he hadn't heard anything audible, he knew that he was in the presence of God. He took his mantle and he wrapped it over his face. And I believe God was saying, this is how I talk to you, Elijah. I don't talk to you in all that noise. I speak to your spirit in silence. See, that still small voice wasn't making any noise compared to those great disturbances. But in the stillness, in the silence, Elijah knew he was in the presence of God. And that's how it is when our spirit meets his spirit. And so I just pray now that the Holy Spirit may show us the difference between the noise of the soul and the quietness of the spirit. And I pray that he would show us what it means to know spirit so that we won't be confused or controlled by our feelings and our thoughts, but instead live in the rest that he's promised us.